welcome to History Factory Plugged In, the podcast at the nexus of history and business. I'm Jason Dressel, and on today's show, we're going to dig into the past and present of superheroes. That's right. Uh, why not? Earlier this month, we had the debut of the new film Joker, and uh, we never got around to saying happy birthday, happy 80th birthday to Batman last month. And uh, we've got Halloween coming up at the uh, the end of the month, so why not? Let's uh, let's talk about some some superheroes today. Uh, so, uh, first, I, I want to assure you that this is not going to be a run-of-the-mill uh, fanboy geek session. Uh, I promise you that we're going to uh, learn some things that you've never heard before about superheroes. Uh, we're going to talk with my pal and History Factory colleague, Adam Nemet, who has written about the origins of superheroes and the roles that they play in our society. Uh, Adam also potentially has a direct genealogical lineage to Bruce Wayne, which we're going to learn a little bit about. So uh, how about that for a teaser? Uh, we're also going to talk with author Mark Tyler Nobleman about a fascinating and largely unknown story about the secret co-creator of Batman and many other characters from the Gotham universe. So wait until you hear what Mark has to say. But first, let me share a little bit about why we're talking about superheroes to begin with. Because as I said before, it's not because we're just a bunch of superhero and comic fanboys and are looking to rationalize this as a suitable topic for a podcast about business and history. In fact, superheroes are low-hanging fruit when it comes to talking about business and history. You see, superheroes are what we call heritage assets. They're intellectual property that have changed owners over time and have appreciated significantly. And part of the reason why they continue to increase in value is because they are creative works that have already been invented and have a built-in customer base. Yet at the same time, they're elastic enough to be reinvented time and time again to meet the needs of an evolving society and marketplace and to expand that customer base. So let's start with some context. From 1978 to 2000, there were 23 movies that we found fell into the superhero movie category. And then from 2002 to 2010, there were 45 superhero movies. But in the last 10 years, from 2010, there have been 103 movies in the superhero genre. Just as the golden age of superhero comic books is considered to be a period from 1938 to 1956, one could argue that we are currently in the golden age of superhero movies based on these comic book characters that were created in a bygone era. Now, the comics industry has been largely dominated by two major players. Most of us know this, right? Uh, Detective Comics, or DC Comics, which was founded back in 1937 and eventually bought by Warner Brothers, and Timely Comics, which was founded in 1939 and later became Atlas Magazine in the 1950s and then in the early 1960s changed its name to Marvel Comics. Incidentally, in its first year, an office assistant by the name of Stan Lee started working at Timely Comics, and he'd wind up having a pretty good career there. But I, I digress. So during the golden age of comics, popularity soared, and many of the most famous superheroes of all time debuted. DC released Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman, and Marvel released Captain America. Fast forward about 50 years, and the comic book industry of the late 20th century has slumped. Even Marvel isn't immune and goes through a period of bankruptcy in 1996. But in the late 90s and early 2000s, there's a major industry shift. Hollywood starts taking interest in comics as the films Blade and X-Men come out in 1998 and 2000. And then after licensing the rights to properties like Blade and X-Men to players like Sony and 20th Century Fox and having little to show for it, Marvel launches its own production company in 2005. 
And that gives Marvel complete creative control at a greater margin, and thus the Marvel Cinematic Universe, or as we know it, the MCU, is born. Meanwhile, DC finally catches a break at the box office with Batman Begins in 2005, which is still probably my favorite uh, superhero movie, and that reignites fan excitement over DC Comics being back on the silver screen. But for the most part, over the last 15 years, the Batmans, Supermans, and Wonder Womans of the screen have not been able to hang with the MCU. Marvel's strategy to construct the MCU back in 2005 has turned out to be pretty lucrative. So far, the movies of the Marvel Cinematic Universe have grossed over $22 billion worldwide. For the last 10 years, Marvel movies have been the highest annual grossing movies in the superhero genre. The last time DC had the top grossing superhero movie was back in 2008 with The Dark Knight. And none of DC's movies have reached over a billion dollars until Aquaman in 2018. Incidentally, the Harvard Business Review recently published a study on Marvel's storytelling success and identified four distinct principles that the company has stayed tethered to. The first is what they call selecting for experienced inexperience. They hire directors and actors who actually have no experience in the superhero genre to encourage fresh perspectives and unique interpretations. The second is what they call a stable core that balances these new players. Marvel holds on to a small group of uh, people from movie to movie, uh, staff, production members, cast members to build continuity. Uh, and then the third is what they call challenging the formula. They haven't, uh, Marvel isn't stuck on certain plots or tropes and instead plays with emotional tones and narrative and visual elements to keep audiences engaged. And the last is cultivating customers' curiosity. Marvel promotes audiences' interest via online communities, Easter eggs in films, and other tactics to engage their customers. It's a master balancing act of consistency and variety, and at the risk of sounding like a total nerd, I would urge you to check out the piece in HBR because it's fascinating and you may find yourself thinking about how the concepts might be applicable in your own workplace. So, Marvel has pretty much been kicking DC Comics' ass, and DC has been trying to play catch-up with its own DC Extended Universe model for superhero storytelling. But interestingly enough, the new Joker film uh, is actually not part of the DCEU. Uh, it's a standalone film uh, set in its own timeline of New York, I mean Gotham City, uh, circa 1981. And uh, Adam and I actually... Uh, just saw this movie a couple of days ago, and uh, were, were quite frankly riveted by it. And uh, and I don't I don't typically identify with being a, a fan of the superhero genre, um, but in, in, in from my perspective, the movie really sort of transcended the genre and was just a really amazing uh, amazing film. Um, and it really focuses uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with it. It essentially tells uh, the origin story of the Joker. So uh, we're going to bring on uh, Adam Nemet. Uh, Adam is uh, one of the creative leads at History Factory. He's one of our authors, uh, and uh, he's also uh, written on the subject of uh, superheroes in the past. So we're going to bring Adam on to talk a little bit about uh, the origins of superheroes. Hey, Adam, welcome to the podcast, buddy. Thanks for having me, Jason. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. So as I was just sharing, we had the opportunity to uh, to uh, go and see Joker. And uh, and of course, uh, the film is uh, uh, the words tour de force come to mind. Um, but uh, the film really focuses on the origin story of the character Joker. And of course, origin stories are a big part of uh, of the comic and superhero genre. 
Um, and I know you've done some uh, some work in the past and some writing, not only on sort of origin stories as they relate to specific characters, but really kind of the origin of the genre itself. Um, so share with us a little bit of that subtext and history from where superheroes come from. Yeah, sure. Um, I, I'll say personally, I think origin stories are uh, the most interesting aspect of superhero of the superhero genre to me. Uh, I like watching these characters go from ordinary to extraordinary, and you know, kind of come into their power uh, in that way. Um, I think that's that's a more interesting story arc and a more interesting transformation than you know when you have these massive teams of superheroes who are all at the top of their game and they're having battles with all powerful villains and it's just, you know, um, you know, space warfare. That's, that's a little less, um, intriguing to me than watching how these characters become who, who they become. Um, it, looking at the history of the genre or history of, of I guess, comic books, uh, which was really the, the first, um, uh, one of the first, you know, uh, platforms where superheroes came onto the scene. There were some early detective and, uh, you know, pulp comic, type um, characters that were sort of proto uh, uh, superheroes in the in the thir early 30s um, but you know in the 1933 you can kind of look at Superman the, the origins of Superman as as a uh, maybe a watershed moment. Um, Superman was created by two uh, two Jewish guys from Cleveland, uh, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. And um, the first time you saw uh, Superman was in 1933, actually in a, a sort of short um, piece where he was a villain. He was, huh. um, it, it was called The Reign of the Superman. And uh, he was a, you know, down and out guy in the bread line who was plucked out of the breadline and, and transformed by this scientist, I guess, into this telepathic supervillain. And he became, he, he becomes almost this Lex Luthor looking or brainiac looking uh, supervillain. Um, but then as uh, Siegel and Schuster were watching what was happening in Nazi Germany, that sort of dark storyline, they, they felt like we really want to do something. Uh, or create a, a character or a story where you have a, a hero that can lift people out of this kind of uh, horror. Um, and so by 1940, uh, they had really transformed the character of Superman uh, from this evil tyrant into this savior. Um, there's a lot of Jewish undertones of his origin story. Uh, you know, his name is Kalel, which is sort of Jewish sounding, and he has to leave Krypton, um, which is being. Uh, essentially destroyed or it's destroying itself for various reasons and uh, and is sent very much like Moses in the reeds into space and uh, and lands you know with these kindly midwesterners who, who take him in and, and raise him um, and by 1940 uh, there's a feature in look magazine in 1940 where you have you know Superman, uh, literally flying around the world, bringing like Hitler and Stalin to justice and bringing them to the world court. Um, so from the beginnings, you know, and, and this continues on in the early development of superheroes, um, a lot of the, the early instances of them were, I think, responding to some of the uh, the, the fascism going on in, during and before World War II. Um, and they were, uh, it was largely uh, a lot of Jewish kids were creating these characters, I think, as a way of um, 
a way of exploring that issue and feeling maybe less helpless from, mm. from America. Yeah, creating characters that ostensibly they could live vicariously through. Exactly. Yeah, and and you know this continues into Marvel. Obviously, DC. There's a whole long story about how Siegel and Schuster essentially get screwed out of the rights of uh, for Superman, and there's a whole business story there with DC with the the uh, you know organization that becomes DC Comics, and and how um, you know Siegel and Schuster did not do very well. Uh, uh, financially, uh, considering the the iconic character they created, um, that's maybe a story for another time. But you can look at some of the the early Marvel characters and the co creators, people like Stanley Lieber, who is Stan Lee, um, uh, Bob Kane, and and Bill Finger, uh, who created Batman, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit. Um, uh, Jaime Simon was Joe Simon, and and Jacob Kurtzberg, Jack Kirby, uh, who created Captain America, and a number of other characters. So there's a lot of um, sort of young uh, young Jews who are who are crafting these characters and working in these these work you know these shops where you'd have um, writers and illustrators and uh, and then letterers and anchors people you know it was this little factory of uh, you know often in a single room of guys producing these storylines and and putting them out on in whatever format they could which you know ended up in the pre-movie days was was comic books interesting yeah, it's interesting as you were as you were talking, Adam. I was also thinking about one of the other kind of themes or, or storylines of of kind of the heritage of these characters is science and technology, and so many of them have been impacted uh, positively or negatively. They've created, they've had superpowers that have that have. Uh, that they've developed normally because of some sort of unexpected accident, right? Sure. What, what's kind of what? What from your your perspective is sort of the 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 rationale or the reasoning for that kind of through line? I think um, there's sort of three. I think of it as three main ways that that superheroes become super. Uh, either they're born with these powers, um, or in the case of someone like Superman, maybe. They have these powers, you know, intrinsic in them that um, get activated. Superman's powers are they have natural born talent. Natural born talent. In the case of Superman, it's activated by the the sun uh, when he's on Earth. You know, these powers are are, are sort of activated uh, in a different way by the Earth's atmosphere and the sun. Uh, then you have um, uh, folks like Spider Man uh, or the Incredible Hulk. Uh, People who are, you know, Spider-Man is, Peter Parker is bit by a radioactive spider. Right. Uh, they sort of fall into these, uh, sometimes accidentally fall into these situations where the they, they, they get these powers through, yeah, as you said, science or technology, um, usually some sort of accident. Uh, and then you have the third group, which are um, the, the folks who kind of make themselves super very proactively through technology sometimes these are mortal very mortal um uh you know as opposed to kind of the mutant alien uh superman and x-men types these are very mortal folks who then figure out a way to activate themselves or make themselves bigger than they are so people like batman or even black panther drinking you know the 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 sort of um uh, plant or drug that that gives Black Panther his powers, uh, and then all the technology, the super suits and the gadgets and the different things that uh, that make them who they are. 
I think the other thing to say about the science and technology piece is, you know, as science was changing so much, and you can think about the mid 40s, late 40s, early 50s with the atomic bomb and the fears that were happening around that, and then all these different, you know, industrial, uh, you know, the industrial revolution, these industrial technologies that were being developed. Um, I think a huge piece of sci-fi in general, and in some ways, the superhero genre is just a, an element of science fiction. Um, there's always that paranoia about about the technology, the new, you know, the new technology and what, it, you know, what dangers could be in there or what good could be in there, that double-edged sword. Um, and the superhero genre tends to play that out as does most science fiction. Sometimes it's purely imaginative, you know, the way that these creators are coming up with technologies that don't exist yet. And then you see science kind of following that in future years or decades, you know, the, the, the imagination influences the science in that way. And sometimes it's obviously the other way around where, you know, things like AI or whatever the, uh, the technology of the day is, ends up weaving its way into these superhero storylines. Uh, there's actually a great, um, I just came back from Arizona, from from Tempe, and uh, uh, there's a great place out there at ASU uh, called the Center for Science and the Imagination, where I, I did a, a talk uh, last week, uh, and it's really all about bringing scientists and technologists and engineers together with fiction writers and artists and having one influence the other in that way. Yeah, and that's interesting, too, in terms of when we were talking before about sort of the, the timeless relevance of the genre and how it can um, be updated and reinterpreted and particularly obviously in the times we live now with bigger broader bioethical uh, decisions ahead of us uh, it, it probably reinforces that superheroes are going to be a good delivery advice to explore some of those bioethical questions as well yeah. um wow that was deep man yeah um <laughs> So uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you about was, and we talked a little bit about this uh, after we saw saw the Joker together the other night, was that the other interesting sort of contrast of, of superheroes is this kind of uh, sort of this emphasis on the hero. And you talked about how, you know, historically, you know, that was probably very uh, deliberate and very reactionary by these uh, young people feeling, you know, helpless or, or, um, uh, or, um, you know, intimidated. And, um, so, you know, by its natural essence, you know, superheroes are essentially superheroes that transcend powers and there's an element of, you know, save us all Superman. Right. And that's kind of, um, incongruent with, uh, with sort of, you know, a civilization that's, that's built on democracy and, and we, the people, and there was even a line in, in Joker, which, you know, felt like a little bit of a kind of, you know, tug at, at Trump with, you know, I alone can save us, or, you know, there's a comment when, yeah. um, when uh, Thomas Wayne is, you know, running for, for office or whatever. Um, so what are your thoughts on that in terms of kind of that sort of balance of, you know, the value of superheroes? Are, are they a good thing that we're kind of programming ourselves to be wanting to be saved versus sort of taking responsibility for ourselves and working together to, to fight the bad guys? Yeah, it's a great question. It's something I've spent about 14 years thinking and writing about, uh, you know, it's a big theme that that runs through 
the novel that that I wrote that that got published last November uh, called We Can Save Us All. And yeah. that that title is <laughs> kind of exactly uh, in line with what you're talking about. I think you're right that as superheroes first came on the scene, it was about um, you know creating this new image of masculinity primarily. Uh, the somewhat weaker seeming um, or the folks who thought of themselves as as helpless or um, uh, you know vulnerable in that way were were projecting this you know this new image of themselves uh, or the culture of what could be but they're putting that all on that one person right they're uh, this one superhuman savior messiah figure can come in and swoop in and, and fix it all um and i think that's still so much a part of our psyche that we're always waiting for the singular hero whether it's you know yeah trump or robert Mueller or uh greta you know thunberg or any of these you know uh you know singular figures that we tend to just sort of project our our vulnerabilities onto um where you know really what i think creates change is typically you know long-term incremental uh mass change you know multiple people or teams um working at something for years and years and years this is what we do for a living is we kind of study um that kind of change and that kind of development over the course of decades and in some cases centuries um, there's always leaders there's always people whether it's a ceo or an innovator or um, uh, you know someone who has risen to the top of their field um, and that's not to say there, there's not a lot to admire there or that there's not these people who come along and and really you know uh, catalyze something or supercharge it in a way um, but you know it's some of it is just like it's more cinematic and more dramatic and interesting to watch explosions and someone flying around doing these amazing things and it is to watch you know 12 people hash out policy in a conference room you know and maybe the latter is where a lot of change is made but the former is just you know, more, you know, more, more titillating to watch. Yeah. Interesting. So, I mean, we see that a little bit with the, you know, the Joker movie that we saw the other night. Um, uh, and I think there's a couple ways to watch that movie or to talk about that movie. There's just the, the baseline incredible performance that Joaquin Phoenix put in and, yeah. you know, other people might, someone out there might disagree, but I, you know, I think you and I were just, astounded at you know how, how what he what he did on the screen um so i think that's one way of looking at it and appreciating the movie and then there's this sort of social commentary uh, well i guess first sort of a historical commentary that overlays in kind of what's going on in the you know early 80s new york and the kind of um uh, you know society they're living in uh the 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 battle between the thomas wayne one percent of the world versus the the have-nots and the and and the you know the folks who are suffering um in this city uh and then you have this third element maybe which is like the commentary on you know is joker a good guy or a bad guy and i think that's frankly where it gets most problematic uh that movie um because he's held up in some ways as a as a hero in that movie or as this leader of this movement and i don't want to you know we, we'll try not to sp add any spoilers right now uh maybe we will later but we'll, we'll try and warn you um 
he's held up in a certain way where I think in a very interesting way, the lines are blurred. Uh, you know, is is he kind of the, the Trumpian figure or is Thomas Wayne are his followers, you know, the Trumpian followers or is it the 99 percent, uh, you know, Antifa group? And, and there's a lot of blurred lines there, which I think is just inherently interesting. Right. Uh, but then, you know, at, at the end of the day, you look at it and, uh, you know, Joker is a psychopathic murderer. Yeah, and, he didn't make, and, uh, didn't make great decisions. You know, he's not a, he, he's he's not a well man, and uh, and and so you know that I, I think part of why you're getting such polarized reviews and responses about this movie is because people can see it, you know, potentially glorifying his actions and uh, people following him in this way. And I think maybe that's the point. I think maybe Todd Phillips, the director, is in on that and aware that when we when we elevate heroes in this way, sometimes we're elevating really bad people uh, because we're kind of giving our power away and we don't know the full story about them. We assume that because they've done this one thing or they've been put on this pedestal that we just need to follow them blindly. And I think that's where heroism or the idea of, of heroes can become really dangerous, whether it's putting someone like that on a pedestal or putting literal you know, statues on pedestals has been a, a lightning rod for a lot of issues, uh, you know, throughout the country. Um, so I think, you know, that's yeah. where heroism becomes problematic. Well, and, and it's a great point. And having read your novel, We Can Save Us All, your book really wrestles with that as well. You know, the, there, it's the, the lines of, of good and bad and black and white are, are pretty blurred. Uh, and there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of uh, well-intentioned bad decisions uh, that are made uh, yeah. in that story as well. And I think, uh, frankly, a lot of it came out of um, you know studying organizations with History Factory and seeing how they evolve. Um, you know, typically in a very good way. Uh, in the case of my novel, you have this group of of young people in the escalating days of climate change uh, at a college campus, and they move off campus and start uh, what becomes, at first, a very practical self self-reliant um, mutual aid society or commune uh, where they're trying to learn and teach each other the various, you know, uh, practical things they need to, they need to do uh, when the power's off for three or four weeks. Um, and, and it starts in that very democ democratic way that you're talking about where everyone's elevating their skills to this level of quote unquote superpowers, but it's all very kind of tongue in cheek. Uh, but then as, as these things tend to happen, you know, this one charismatic but unhinged figurehead comes to the fore and people start to, you know, relinquish their power and and give it over to him uh, and it becomes a little bit culty. Uh, so I think little that's bit. sort of the, the double-edged sword of, of this idea of, of heroes. Yeah, and indeed, it, that was an element of the Joker film that I didn't expect, that kind of cult element. I never thought of, I always thought of, from a character perspective, the Joker being a lone dude mm -hmm. um, and not having, you know, a following. Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting because he does, you know, in all the bat, a lot of the Batman movies, you do see all of his henchmen, right? Oh, you know, well, that's the, true. All the, Suicide Squad, yeah, and all, and, all, that, yeah. and all of the other, you know, just nameless characters that show up that Batman just gets to beat up and you know throw away, right? Uh, and and you know, all the, the extras, that, right? Uh, all the extras, all the extras that, Batman has to fight through <laughs> to get to the yeah. the big bad, yeah. And this is like part of where. 
this and you know a lot of people have uh looked at batman in a similarly conflicted light i mean here is a one percenter who can't get over his parents you know his parents death years and years ago and needs to you know dress up and go around beating up poor people um you can you can see his uh you know his whole <laughs> approach in a good or bad light as well. Um, and I think, you know, that's what Joker was playing with a little bit. Yeah. So it's interesting. We were talking about origin stories. And, of course, everyone knows the origin story of, of Batman, which you just alluded to um, with uh, Batman, of course, is is an orphan whose uh, parents were, were brutally murdered in the street. And uh, you, uh, in doing uh, some work, I know, in the last couple of years as your book was uh, uh, being promoted um, and doing a little bit more research and writing on the genre, had a very interesting uh, discovery. Uh, and I kind of teased this uh, earlier in the show uh, that uh, you might have actually a genealogical link. We may, in fact, ladies and gentlemen, be talking to uh Bruce Wayne's grandson. Yeah, no uh, big so you, deal. So you want to explain that to us, uh, Mr. Wayne? Yeah, sure. So yeah. I... Uh, why, why didn't I introduce you as Adam Wayne to met? I don't know. I was a missed just, opportunity. Yeah. Uh, so the the story that, as I understand it, or what I've started to... Um, it's It's been a little bit of a detective story for me, which goes back to the, the DC detective comic <laughs> um, and the origins of Batman as a as kind of a, a Sherlock Holmesy sleuth. Uh, I started... Uh, looking at superheroes, you know, years and years ago as I was writing this novel. Um, but then after it came out, after it was published in November 2018, uh, my publisher um, asked me to do a little research and and write a, a personal essay maybe about like the origins of Jewish superheroes um, for this particular Jewish book council uh, website. Um, and I started researching and found that uh, Bob Kane and Bill Finger, the two uh, co-creators of Batman, uh, graduated from DeWitt Clinton High School in the Bronx uh, the same exact year as my grandfather graduated uh, from that from that same high school. Um, DeWitt Clinton High School has a great, amazing history, by the way. A lot of amazing uh, artists and and. Um, innovators have come out of there. Comedians, uh, frankly, a lot of a lot of uh, Jewish folks and a lot of Black folks, uh, who were the the folks living around the Bronx at the time. But there's an amazing lineage of mm. people who've come out of that high school. Um, so at first, I didn't think much of it, uh, but looking at the fact that my grandfather graduated the same years as them, um, I knew that my grandfather was an orphan. Also. Um, I knew little bits about it, but then as I got into the story a little bit more, um, his, his father had died of a heart attack at like age 30 something, early thirties. Uh, and then his mother was, uh, and you know, trigger warning here, but she was brutally murdered, um, in a, a, a fairly public, uh, uh, case that made the front pages of, of some of the New York newspapers for a few days. Um, she was found, um, uh, you know, somewhat f far away from where she was supposed to be, um, and brought to a hospital, and then and then died there. And I won't get into the the details of it, but um, this happened when my grandfather was uh, a freshman, uh, I believe, in high school. So it 
it was in the news. It was something that would have been fairly public around the school, I would think, at the time. Uh, he was then orphaned, so he had to go live with um, with his aunt and uncle. Uh, and I, I got in, kind of into a bit, bit of an Ancestry.com rabbit hole and found that he lived about a block away from Bob Kane when the murder happened. And then he moved about a block away from Bill Finger, from where Bill Finger was living when he went to live with his his uh, aunt and uncle. And that there's a park right around there that uh, that uh, in Mark Tyler Nobleman's uh, uh, documentary, uh, Batman and uh, Batman and Bill, um, which you'll talk to him about it. Um, that park f- features heavily, and that was sort of an area where Kane and Finger, you know, would sit on a park bench and work out this character. Um, there are other strange connections there. Uh, you know, my grandfather played the violin, and Bob Kane played the played the violin, and I wonder if they like maybe went to you know uh, uh, lessons somewhere nearby together. But um, it's it's sort of you know half tongue in cheek, but I wonder if there's some element of that story that wound up in you know in the origin story of of Batman with his parents being murdered. Wow, that's amazing. That's a that's just a great line. <laughs> Batman was my granddad. <laughs> so. And you know, I my I think the difference though, the real difference, and I wrote an article about this for uh, Salon.com called uh, "Was My Grandfather Batman?" Uh, and and I think, uh, you know, just to kind of bring it bring it back to to some of what we were talking about, um, you know, the essence of a lot of these origin stories like Batman or like Joker is that, you know, these uh, awful things could happen to to people at a at a young age or at a particular time in their life. And it sets them on this course of vengeance or um, evil or, or certain things, you know, in the case of Joker, I think it, it sort of uses all of these, um, these difficult things about his upbringing or his life to justify uh, some of the psychotic decisions he ends up making. Um, my grandfather was a great guy. He, he was, he was awesome. And uh, you know, maybe all of that was some mild mannered cover for, for some vigilante justice. He was enacting in, in his spare time. Uh, but he was a, a wonderful husband, a wonderful father, uh, you know, worked very hard his whole life. And um, despite a lot of bad things that ha- happened to him, he was able to move through that and, and find a positive spin on it or a way to kind of um, build a family where you have someone like Bruce Wayne who had this happen to him and the whole the whole conceit even like in the Lego Batman movie is that he's never been able to connect with anyone ever since and I'm not trying to downplay people who've had bad things happen to them Uh, but in looking at the hero stories and looking at a lot of these origin stories um, there's a tendency and I think it connects to business sometimes as well there there's a tendency to to allow difficulties or challenges or conflict to to justify uh bad decision making yeah uh and and i don't think i think that's a cop-out yeah no that's a great point so last thing i wanted to ask you was uh kind of bringing bringing it up to, to the present day uh why do you think these characters are so relevant right now i mean is it is it all because of really good business and good creative is it basically that you know marvel's just created something that's just such a great asset or you know do you see parallels in terms of where we are now as a society over the last 20 years and some of those parallels to why superheroes were relevant you know to begin with 75 80 years ago 
Yeah, well, there's certainly parallels. And, and maybe in every time there's um, this feeling where every generation sort of feels like it's on the verge of something or, you know, that theirs might be the last. Disenfranchised. Or disenfranchised or there's there's wars or disasters or or different, you know, government regimes, you know, rising and falling. Um, so I don't know that we live in a, you know, a, a, a time totally unlike any other. I think there's been a lot of... Um, crazy stuff that has happened in the human story. Uh, but I do think from where we sit right now, we all feel what we feel and that it's a really, you know, intense time of transformation, a lot of uh, dangerous, you know, um, uh, potentially dangerous things out there, whether it's, you know, individuals or dictators or climate change, or whether it's, you know, potentially positive, exciting opportunities around technology or, or scientific breakthroughs or, uh, just the human spirit. Um, and I think that's, that's similar to, you know, the, these eras when a lot of, um, uh, a, a lot of the heroes were created. Um, I do think the Marvel specifically has been really impressive at re you know, reinvigorating the genre and connecting it to a lot of the social issues going on right now. I think that's why it's been successful, whether it's something like Black Panther looking at, you know, uh, isolationism or, you know, racial justice or, um, you know, the, the sort of um, global uh, connectivity of, of how we all operate right now. Uh, or, you know, any of the, a lot of the Marvel, you know, Iron Man, a lot of the Avengers movies are, are all touching on different aspects of, of our social issues right now. And I think, you know, up until Joker, which is not, as you said, in the, in the DC extended universe, uh, but it's sort of the side, the side gig where, mm -hmm. you know, they, they were sort of allowing Todd Phillips a, a low budget to, um, experiment in, in kind of a self-contained way. Yeah. We said it, it's like an art house film. It is It's basically an art house film, which is a different model than the Marvel model where they're kind of constantly, with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, each movie is a little bit of a, a, a reimagination. They have a different director coming in, and as you said, this core you know production team. So the look and feel is the same from movie to movie, and all feels of a piece. But it's um, you know directed in a different way, or they're able to mess with different genres. Whether this one's kind of a crime caper, and this one's a heist film, and this one's a spy movie, this one's a space opera. Uh, you know, DC has been kind of one note, uh, and they have not been as successful in reinvigorating it. And there is something that feels a little a little staid, a little, you know, obvious and formulaic, even when they're looking at things like, you know, the rise of fascism and, and you know, Hydra and these, these things that we're kind of dealing with right now. Somehow it feels like less palpable or less, like, um, uh, relevant than what Marvel's doing. Yeah. No, it's, it's interesting. Uh, referring back to the, uh, the Harvard business review article, it's like, it's really smart branding, you know? And it's yeah. like, it's this really strong balance of kind of a well-defined brand architecture, uh, while at the, while at the same time providing a lot of flexibility, uh, inside the, uh, inside the box. So. Which is awesome because they're taking massive chances with massive budgets. You yeah. know, a lot of times they're bringing in these unknown directors, or not unknown, but folks who were successful in a very particular uh, kind of movie, and then, okay, let's see what they can do with $200 million and, you know, this, this, this huge cast and this huge thing. And they've been really successful because they're allowed that creative freedom. But then, as you said, there's this really solid core 
of technicians and you know special effects and actors and 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 uh and it's taken you know superhero genre from something that like kills careers <laughs> to something that makes them yeah uh, awesome all right man well let's leave it there uh thanks for dropping by adam and uh we'll talk soon cool thanks for having me jason all right buddy So as Adam and I were talking, we talked quite a bit about uh, about the origin story of, of Batman and some of these other characters. And as we mentioned, um, Mark Tyler Nobleman, uh, an author who also uh, produced a film a couple of years ago, which talks about uh, the history of Batman. So uh, let's listen into my conversation with Mark. Hey, Mark, how are you doing? I'm good. Thanks, Jason. How are you? Doing great, doing great. So uh, you've uh, spent a lot of time over the last 10 or 12 years uh, with uh, Batman and the Batman universe and uh, really uncovered a pretty fascinating uh, mystery about uh, the legend of, of Batman and, and, and not just kind of, well, really the origin story of how Batman was created. Uh, so tell us a little bit about uh, Bob Kane and Bill Finger. Sure. Uh, so Batman debuted in 1939, 80 years ago, and for most of that time he was credited to a cartoonist named Bob Kane. And Bob was involved, but not by himself. He had a partner, a writer named Bill Finger, who was there from day one and not only wrote the first Batman story, but also essentially designed the costume, even though he wasn't the artist, and then went on to write many of the classic Batman stories of the next 25 years, including the introductions of Robin, the Joker, Catwoman, Commissioner Gordon, the Batcave, the nickname the Dark Knight. So Bill was fundamental and instrumental in, in, in the creation of the world, yet he was never officially credited in his lifetime. Bob became wealthy and pseudo-famous. I mean, not you know, as famous as any cartoonist. You know, no one recognized him on the street, but you know, he made sure people knew that he was the guy behind Batman. And meanwhile, Bill died poor, alone, for virtually unknown in 1974. Yeah, and uh, you, you obviously have studied this extensively. You were the author of uh, the book Bill the Boy Wonder, the secret co-creator of Batman, and then uh, star in the documentary uh, film uh, Batman and Bill. And that was one of the, the, the aspects of the story that really struck me was the contrast of uh, the end of uh, these two uh, guys' uh, lives. Um, and and so to paint a portrait for us, you allude to it a little bit, but um, you know one of the things that struck me, for instance, was um, uh, was uh, Bob Kane's you know tombstone, literally just that sort of contrast to the circumstances of how uh, these two men are, are even remembered uh, in terms of how, of when, when they died. Yeah. Well, yeah, uh, because Bill was never officially credited, there was almost no fanfare when he passed away. And, I mean, that's tragic no matter who you are, but it certainly, it, you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's an added layer when you've done something. So where, and where, and where, where's, Bill, where's Bill Finger buried? He's not buried. Uh, he, he died where he lived, which was in New York, and he, he was cremated, and his ashes were spread by his only child, his son Fred, on a beach in Oregon. So there's no gravestone for Bill. But Bob has one in California, and on that gravestone, he takes 
I mean, you would never know that there was anyone else involved in Batman. He, he, you can see it online if you Google it. He takes full credit, and not only that, he glorifies himself um, using ten adjectives. And I say that he did it because, I, you know, I know he was dead, but it sounds like the way he talks in life, so I'm pretty sure that he had that copy written for him before he died for his approval. I uh, can't prove that, but it just seems, it seems pl- very highly plausible, highly likely. Um, and that's in California, in Los Angeles. Yeah. And, and why did this happen? Why was there this contrast of uh, Bob Kane obviously always being linked to the creation and getting all the credit for, for Batman and the Gotham universe? And why uh, was Bill Finger this sort of forgotten footnote in history? Well, uh, Bill's not blameless here. He, he let it happen, at least at the start. Back in the 30s when comic books were new, this was actually fairly standard that one person would take full credit for a comic book or a comic strip, and it was typically the person who started it, no matter how small that initial contribution was. So in this case, Bob Kane had the idea for a character named Batman. That was basically it. He had no backstory, no personality, you know, and the look that he had in mind was not the one that they ended up going with. It was, again, what Bill, Bill uh, you know, orally uh, visualized and described, and Bob took those ideas. So Bob did have an idea for that name, but a name is not a character. Bill took it from there, essentially, at the start, but because Bob had that original idea and because Bob was the one who went to the company and pitched it, which we'll never know for sure, but my guess is that he didn't invite Bill to be part of that because they didn't even know about Bill at the start at the company. Bob probably just went in by himself and made it look like he did it by himself. And when he came back to Bill and said they want to publish Batman, I mean, that's a big deal no matter when you get that kind of news, but certainly even more so at, you know, at the end of the Depression where there are millions out of work, and here's Bill getting a chance not only to have a job, but a job that he enjoys. So I think he was probably willing to make some, you know, more concessions than we, in you know, looking back, are happy with. You know, we most people when they hear the story, they they get so sad for Bill, and they tell me, why did he not do more? Why did he not speak up? And we don't know how much he did speak up. He did probably a little bit, but he agreed to it partly because it was, the, you know, the the standard of the times. And then by the time he realized that maybe he should not have done that, maybe he should speak up, he probably thought it was too late because, you know. Bob's name had been the only name on Batman, and the only other witness to what really happened was Bob, the guy that had been lying about it the whole time. So Bill probably thought, if I come forward, Bob will just deny it, and that's exactly what happened in 1965, you know, 25 years later. After living in this context for 25 years, Bill finally was coaxed out, and and sure enough, Bob basically said Bill's lying. He's he's remembering this completely wrong. I'm the main, I'm the creator of Batman, not Bill or anyone else, just me, Bob Kane. Uh, and how so 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 Bob Kane and, and Bill Finger worked together to create uh this character in in 1939 and and also worked together to create uh many of these other uh iconic and and critical you know characters to 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 the Gotham universe and to the Batman story and then what happens after that i mean did Bill Finger then continue to play a role uh in the creation and, and evolution of these storylines and characters, or was he really just there at the beginning? Oh, no, he was instrumental, again, for the first 25 years. 
I mean, the example I always give is you stop a stranger in the supermarket and ask that person to name the first thing that comes to mind about Batman. Uh, if the person doesn't slowly back away or call security and actually indulges <laughs> you, um, the, the answer that that person will give, first of all, that person will have an answer. Everyone will have an answer, even people that have never read a Batman story or seen a Batman film. He's just part of the culture so deeply that we, we know about him through attrition. And that person will have an answer, and whatever that person says, I'd say nine out of ten times, would be a Bill Finger contribution. That's how pervasive Bill is in the, world, in the creation of Batman and his world. So, as I said before, he named Batman. Uh, and Robin's, well, their, their civilian identities, Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson. He named Gotham City. He nicknamed Batman the Dark Knight. He wrote the origin stories of many of the classic villains. And this was all, again, over 25 years done anonymously. So uh, he, was, he was the prime mover, in my opinion, the creative prime mover, whereas Bill, uh, Bob, sorry, Bob drew Batman at the beginning, but almost immediately hired ghost artists to draw for him, too. So by the mid-40s, Bob was neither drawing nor writing any of it and was the only name on it. And little fun fact, if you ever go on trivia, uh, a trivia game show like Jeopardy, Bob Kane did not write a single Batman story ever. He never wrote a Batman story. So, I mean, the contrast between the two is, is extreme. Yeah. Well, in, in your reference to other artists uh, who were working, uh, obviously, uh, invisibly and behind the scenes to, uh, to create these, these comic books and these stories, um, it's interesting, too, because in, in the documentary, there's also a reference to uh, Bob Kane showing, sort of doubling down and tripling down on his um, – ownership and, and sort of soul creation of the character. And as part of that, he shows this sketch that he had created back in like 1934 uh, to try to reinforce that he was, you know, the, the single creator of Batman. Right. Yeah. So he, I, I, I assume you're not buying that. <laughs> oh no, no, no. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a clear, it's a clear, uh, you know, revisionist history move. <laughs> Sorry, revisionist history move. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I mean Bob, Bob was you know like like the poster boy for revisionist history. Uh, even before it was history, he was revising it. Uh, so yeah, Bob was as as time went on, and Bob realized that he couldn't keep the lid on this. Uh, he you know seemed to become a little more desperate in trying to hold on to this legacy that he thought he was entitled to. So the story that you mentioned was um, he put out an autobiography in 1989, which was the 50th anniversary of Batman, same year the first big-budget Batman movie came out, the Tim Burton movie yeah. with Michael Keaton. So in that book, he credits Bill for the first time, actually, at least in print. He's, actually, he says, Bill Finger was the unsung hero of Batman. I wish I could go back in time 15 years and put his name on it, meaning while he was still alive. And he said that in print, because I think his conscience was kept catching up with him, but he didn't follow through. He could have easily still added Bill's name to Batman. Just because Bill was dead doesn't mean he couldn't do the right thing, but he didn't go that far. He wanted to make himself look heroic in a way, or at least um, have a, you know, conscientious, but he didn't actually do it. So in that same book that he credits Bill, 
he also undermines him again. So it's a huge contradiction. So with the story that you referenced, was he shows this sketch of what looks like Batman that he says he drew in 1934. Yet later on, or actually maybe even earlier in the book, he had already said that, that Bill designed the costume. He, he did give Bill credit for that in the book as well. And Bob was so egotistical that when he gave credit to someone else, it's worth paying attention to because, you know, he did it so rarely. It stands to reason that the few times that he did, that must be something legit because he otherwise wouldn't do it. So he says that Bill designed the costume in 1939, yet then he shows this sketch that said, looks like Batman that he said he drew in 1934 and not realizing that he's contradicting himself in his own life story in a major way. So, you know, he was trying to be good, but he was also still trying to hold on to the lie. Yeah. Do you think as he got older that, that Bob Kane was carrying heavy guilt around this? I do think he was carrying guilt. I, I couldn't say how heavy. Uh, heavy enough for him to agree to credit Bill in that autobiography. He wasn't going to do that, apparently. The, the, the actual author of the book, even though it was an autobiography, uh, I think Tom Andre is a, a colleague and friend of mine now. And uh, without Tom, Bill might not have been mentioned at all in that book. So Tom really encouraged Bob to think about his legacy in, in, a, in a different way. Bob had been thinking about it, not just about Bob as the creator of Batman, but Bob as a human being who has, you know, who, who can show some compassion and sympathy and, and graciousness to people that have helped him get where he is. So Tom nudged Bob into, including Bill and other people, I think, in that book. So I do think that Bob was feeling it, but I still think he would have not done that without being nudged. He would have not acknowledged other people that helped him as much as he did without, you know, people saying, hey, Bob, you know, I think it would be in your best interest to be grateful for the people that helped you. So, yes, he is guilty, felt guilty, but not... I mean, as Michael Uslan, the Batman film producer, says in the cell, not sufficiently guilty to fix it. Yeah, yeah. It's a, in all the research and interviews that you did, Mark, did you ever talk to members of Bob Kane's family? No, but not for lack of trying. I reached out okay. during the research of the book and did not hear back. And the filmmakers reached out to the Kane family during the making of the film and did not hear back. And the Kane family had, has made no public statement about any of this. From the credits of the film, they've said nothing. So I think that's just their, that's yeah. just their stance. They don't, they, don't, they don't get involved. Yeah. Well, it, it, it's an interesting story, I imagine, and, and some of the things I've read, you know, the, this journey started for you really is kind of a, a an interesting sort of footnote in history and you know your natural curiosity uh, about the story but um, as this uh, process evolved over the course of a decade it really became uh, it really seemed to come become for you a, a real personal uh, uh, kind of battle and, and and it almost feels like you became a an extended uh, honorary you know honorary member of the finger family um what was that experience like is this as this uh as this project kind of continued to have different layers that you continued to peel back yeah i mean i did get very personally invested in this i mean emotionally invested uh, because it it uh i mean it, it's it's just a heart-tugging story i mean you know you have to be the Grinch to not feel it. So again, even if you're not a Batman or even a superhero fan, 
hearing the broad strokes of it, it's just really very tragic. So when I realized that, you know, I seemed to be the only one pursuing this. There were tons of people that knew about Bill Finger and wanted them to be credited, but they didn't know the backstory. They just knew that, that Bill was there from day one and should be credited, but they didn't know this, his family drama, his, you know, his, anything much about his personal life. I mean, once, it, once a person becomes more than just a name on a page, it's, it, it, it can have a different effect on you. So I did get very moved by this and also very determined. And then once I started to meet family and, and people that knew Bill, that only spurred me on even more just because he, you know, he came alive to me more um, to a certain extent. I, I remember at one point when I was talking to a, a contemporary of Bill's or almost a contemporary, so this would have been a guy at that time in his 80s, and I said something about rock and roll. I asked something about mu- what kind of music Bill liked and uh, mentioned rock and roll, and the friend said that you know, Bill listened mostly to classical. I mean, you know, he was... By the time rock and roll came out, he was already, you know, in his mid-40s, wasn't a teenager. So it just, I realized I didn't, you know, I was not thinking about Bill fully through because he wasn't, he wouldn't have cared much about the Beatles or, or at least not that everyone that age doesn't, but he, it wasn't his generation, his, yeah. you know, it wasn't his formative years. So, yeah. you know, I knew him, felt like I knew him well, but then sometimes I realized I didn't know him that well. So yeah, it became very personal. And then also when the family, when I found family and realized that these living souls could benefit from this situation changing, then it became more than a book. I mean, I, you know, here I'm just a, you know, a writer of kids books, you know, not particularly well known and no bestsellers, not, not a force in the industry in any, by any stretch. And I had, was sitting on this story that I thought was bigger than a, any one book and, and something that actually could have a significant impact on, um, you know, the way that creators are treated across industries. I mean, you know, that we all have to speak up for ourselves and it's never too late. And if someone doesn't, if you don't do it yourself, someone else might do it at one point, and that's important that we give credit where credit is due. It's a cliche, but it's important. So yeah, it did become very personal for me um, yeah. as a writer, fellow writer. I mean, I I can understand what it feels like to be slighted, or not to the extent that Bill was, but you know, we all understand what it's like in the creative world to not get credit for our work or not have people see our work for what we think it is. Yeah, and it's it's interesting too. Another storyline of this is the role that Batman fans become become you know begin to play in it. Uh, you know, I was struck at sort of the the irony, right? That you know, fans of of, of comic books and of superheroes are you know this battle of you know good versus evil. And uh, didn't the, the the fans themselves become sort of a a, a force of or a voice um, for for Bill Finger? Yeah, I mean they had been as far back as the '60s, and then I just came along and tried to harness that a bit more and mobilize it, or you know, channel it into one louder voice because that's what I thought would get the attention of DC Comics. You know, I could write a book and in an echo chamber. Um, or just be out there on social media in an echo chamber. But if it just seemed like there was a concentrated effort, you know, I guess basically a petition of sorts, that I didn't think that would actually be the only thing that could change this, but I thought it was an essential cog in that wheel. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so the fans, you know, were very gung-ho. I mean, you know, when I first started, there were, you know, uh, people, a few naysayers online that would say, you know, Mark, you seem like a nice guy, but 
just give up. You're, you're wasting your time, dude. You, you don't see what's really going on here. You're talking about Warner Brothers. They're not going to listen to you or anyone, frankly, on this. So, you know, it's nice effort, good intentions, but move along. Um, but it was mostly, I mean, I was not even 1%. It was mostly people saying, yay, you know, let's do it. You know, let's, where, where do I sign up? What can I do? And I'm like, well, I'm not really running a, you know, full-on operation here. I'm just trying to write a book. But, you know, as time went on, I would I, I'd speak a lot and I would, you know, I would encourage people to tweet and to, uh, you know, we, we just support it online as much as possible without doing a formal petition. And I think the biggest um, uh, part of that, besides my book itself, was I tried to get Bill a Google Doodle. This wasn't mentioned in the, in the documentary, but uh, for his 100th, what would have been his 100th birthday and the 40th anniversary of his death, and it was actually a couple other anniversaries as well. 2014, because you get a Google Doodle for someone, and then literally millions of people learn who someone is the same day. Um, and that was apparently, I mean, I have no metrics on it, uh, you know, directly, but from what I saw, and what I've been told by other people that know about this, a bit about this thing, this kind of thing, um, it was the biggest grassroots uh, campaign to get someone to Google Doodle ever. I mean, just in terms of tweets and requests and emails to Google, um, yet it still didn't happen. But uh, it did raise a lot of awareness. And it got me on Kevin Smith's podcast, and he's a huge Batman fan and, you know, a big name in, in Hollywood, and he is a big supporter of this cause. So even though we didn't get the doodle, we did get more attention for this cause. Uh, and fans were, yeah, again, were, were a driving force in, in you, know, like, you know, seeing this through and just showing that there's support for this, and, and it's the right thing to do. And ultimately, you were successful. Ultimately, you were able to uh, essentially help rewrite history uh, because now Bill Finger is uh, recognized and, and given that credit that he's due. Yeah, in 2015, um, which was nine years after I started the research and three years after the book came out, DC Comics did change that credit line. They added Bill's name, which... I was pushing for all along and optimistic about, but never, uh, you know, never counting on. There was no guarantee of it, of course. So that was a huge win for creators everywhere, and certainly, a, you know, the biggest win possible for Bill Finger to be honored like that. Not, not even honored. I mean, it's, it was just basic. It's, it's, it's what should have been happening, you know, been happening all along. Um, but just to be acknowledged in that way, and it's just such a shame that he is no longer here to see it. Uh, you could choose to believe that maybe he knows somehow, but he's not here on, on in, in person. Um, so that was yeah, hugely um, gratifying to see that uh, a company of Time Warner's size could, you know, could make a change like that. Even though you know it, it's it's not easy, you know, it's not easy for them. And, and you know, it's not that the guys who work there don't think that it should happen, but we're talking about corporation, not talking about individual human beings' emotions here. And it's we all you know understood what the stakes are and what, what's not just as simple as, you know, typing in a new name. I mean, there's a lot that goes with that. So, um, but it, yeah, it was, a, it was a big cultural moment, I think, for, for well, it was, I, thought it was, I thought it was a big cultural moment. What was the tipping point that enabled that to happen, in your opinion? Well, uh, I found Bill's lone granddaughter. Uh, when I started this, we didn't know that there were any heirs left. 
And, I mean, she knew that she was there. She knew that Bill Finger was her grandfather. Her name's Athena. But she wasn't acting on it because for most of her life, as you saw in the documentary, or you could see if you haven't watched it yet, if you're listening, um, she was told that there was no point in pursuing credit for Bill because uh, her dad, Fred, had tried and failed, and Bill had tried to some extent and failed, and no one else who had, you know, spoken up on Bill's behalf had succeeded. So it just, it's, and, you know, the Superman guys had a huge struggle getting credit and compensation for what they did. So it just seemed like everything was stacked against this happening. So I don't, I totally understand why she wasn't, you know, dropping everything in her life to pursue this huge undertaking. Um, but finding that there was an heir just legally changes the, you know, the possibility. You know, I could have written a book and made a movie and spoken around the world, which I've done, but it, it, and I had, got, had gotten a million people to sign a petition, which I didn't do or, or try to do, but you get the idea, and it might not have been enough. But having an heir who's the legal heir who can then challenge this legally, and I, I'm not a lawyer, so I can't, I can't get into the, uh, you know, the, the specifics on that. I don't, I, I don't know. I couldn't explain that. Um, that, was, that was the tipping point. You know, having her you know, change her mind and be willing to pursue this and approach DC Comics and say, this is not right. So that was, that was the, big, the biggest uh, asset in this campaign. Yeah. And do, do you know if the family also receives financial compensation or is it just the recognition, which I know is really the, the, the core of what they were trying to accomplish? Uh, well, yeah, that was when Athena did finally decide to pursue this, you know, her goal was credit. You know, she said credit or basically both said credit or bust, and anything else would be gravy, you know, it would be a bonus. But the goal was credit, and, but it did, but usually, uh, you know, as you would expect, that when you're doing something like this, credit goes hand-in-hand hand with, with compensation. And there was some compensation back from the start, really, 2007, when she first reached out to D.C., they did begin to send her uh, royalty checks for reprints of Bill Finger stories, and they hadn't been doing that, so it was better than what Athena had been receiving, which was nothing, but it was not what the family deserved. And so that, that went on for a few years, but then when the credit line changed in 2015, they adjusted oh, that's the, terrific. the financials as well. That's awesome. And you mentioned this before uh, with your reference to, to Superman, but it, it sounds like, uh, you know, this was kind of a phenomena of the industry that there was a lot of kind of unsung heroes that created these characters that, you know, we all uh, know and, and see in, in so many different applications. Uh, so that it sounds like that was kind of a, a pretty common practice and that there's a lot of bill fingers out there, albeit probably not as uh uh, not as, um, you know, sort of high profile in terms of the things that he did for, for the Batman universe. Yeah, it was all too common, and not just in comics, not just in publishing. I mean, it's, I mean, human beings have been screwing each other since the beginning of time, I'm assuming. So, uh, yeah, yeah, and it was, it was pretty rampant in comics because um, there were no watchdogs, and, you know, it was the 30s and 40s, so obviously it was no... Uh, you know, fan mobilization of any kind yet, and certainly no internet. So there was, it, you know, it would have been a lot harder to try to, you know, fight for these things back then if you weren't, well, whether or not you were the creator, actually. So uh, the other thing was that, you know, at the beginning, comics weren't considered art. 
In fact, a lot of people thought of them as trash. And even some of the people working in comics, they don't think they would have said it's trash, but they might have thought it was disposable, you know, that, you know, that these characters wouldn't be around in five years, let alone 75. So yeah. what, what's the point in exerting all this energy to, to get credit or fight for credit if, you know, in five years no one's going to know these guys are? So I, don't, I can't, don't know if that's what Bill was thinking. I, I you know, he never spoke yeah. on that specifically, at least uh, in print. So I don't know, but it would, it would make sense that they wouldn't think that this was going to yeah. <clears throat> well, it's interesting. You, you mentioned uh, before uh, uh, the Beatles, and of course, you know the, the Beatles got around this issue with uh, nearly all the songs, unless they were written specifically by Ringo or by George. They all had that Lennon and McCartney label. So even and, and I believe it was acknowledged. You know, some of those songs might have been you know eighty percent Lennon or eighty percent McCartney, but they had it very clear that it was always credited as Lennon and McCartney, so that they didn't have you know these kinds of these kinds of issues. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and other comic characters do it that way. I mean, Superman is credited to both the better and the art. Yeah. It's a long story there, but they, they were always and yeah. other characters, but then there were some that um, either had only one person credited, or for many years, a lot of major characters had no no credit. In fact, some looked in uh, Green Lantern or Flash Comic, at least last time I checked. Those are two characters, and they are not officially credited yet. Um, because, you know, guys back in the 40s and 50s didn't lock it in the way that Bob Kane did. I mean, that was, you know, his strength was that he took business advice. Uh, not everybody can take advice, but he did, and he, and he locked in that credit. So, you know, I give, I give him credit for that, for being savvy enough to do that. But obviously he did other things that undermine that. Yeah. Wow. Well, a fascinating story and uh, an interesting, uh, interesting experience for you being, uh, in a sense, both the uh, sort of detective and, and writer of the story, but also very much in helping shape the story's outcome. So, uh, so uh, what, a, what, a, what a great experience uh, that you've had over these last 10 or 12 years helping, uh, helping rewrite history. Well, yeah, I mean, I sometimes say that um, Bill... Bill rewrote history, and I just helped correct it. <laughs> um, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, but it was a cool thrill. Awesome. Well, let's leave it there. Uh, Mark, thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Thank you very much for having me, Jason. I appreciate it. Sure thing. Okay, so that's our show. Thanks for joining us on History Factory Plugged In. I'm Jason Dressel, and uh, we'll talk in a couple weeks. Thanks. Thanks.